Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. You're turning there. Uh, just was thinking this week how new relationships are big news. We have all kinds of ways of announcing them these days. There's, of course, the sort of subtle changing of your status on social media, which is not so subtle and stirs up all kinds of chatter. Some people opt for a more flamboyant announcement, maybe a family gathering when they drop the bomb, or a, uh, a party with friends. Uh, some people might want to go global on YouTube. For some of you who are so old, the best you could do was carve it in a tree. But whatever it was, uh, we have these ways of uh, announcing new relationships. But in certain situations, of course, uh, it's not always good news. In fact, it's tragic news. It is uh, a relationship that in some cases is shameful, might even be inappropriate. And although you may try to get everyone excited around you, there's a prevailing sense that it's wrong. Well, it's a little bit of, the, of what Paul wants to talk to us about in Romans chapter 7. Not relationships per se, but that image of relationships. This is a passage talking about relationships, but not so much with other people. He's talking about our relationship with the law and our relationship, if you will, with Christ. And the entire chapter is sort of building on truths that we've already seen in Romans chapter 6. In fact, it's vital that we understand what has already been said there so that we can understand chapter 6 because as we saw in that chapter, he made several references to the fact that we died together with Christ. And that concept of our death with Christ will be a building block into what he wants to tell us in chapter 7. We died to sin, we died to our old life, and in fact, although we were once slaves to sin, we are now slaves to Christ. Paul, building on those things, advances, if you will, our understanding then of how the Christian life works by now telling us that not only did we die to our old life, and not only telling us did we die to a life of sin, but now he wants to tell us that we have died to the law. And that's the key contrast, the key difference in what he told us in chapter 6 and what he's telling us here. In chapter 6, we died to sin. In chapter 7, we died to the law. And that is the dominant theme of the chapter. In fact, he mentions the law or the commandment 29 times in 25 verses. Because, as you know, he knows if we're going to ever live successfully this Christian life, we have to understand that we are dead to sin. We have to understand that we're free from it. He knows that if we're ever going to successfully live this Christian life, we have to understand that we are now enslaved to God. But he also knows that if we're going to successfully live this Christian life, we have to know uh, and understand our former relationship to the law and our new relationship if we're genuine believers to Christ. Now, at the beginning of, uh, of Romans 7, this is all presented in the form of an analogy. In chapter 6, it was, of course, analogies of death and of life, of slavery and of freedom. But here it's an analogy of marriage. And as we'll see, the whole point in, in saying what he's saying is that before you can ever enter into a new relationship, 
Before you can never enter into a proper relationship with Christ, a, a new marriage, if you will, there has to be this death that we've been talking about. But once that death happens, we are free to enter into a new relationship. Now listen to the way Paul says it, beginning there in verse 1 of Romans chapter 7. He says, Do you not know, brothers, that I'm speaking to those, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, She'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and she's, she marries a, if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law though the, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now there's a lot going on in those verses, honestly. But the main point is simply this. It is to demonstrate how we enter, how we must enter a relationship with Christ. And this new relationship is vital if we're going to, as Paul says, bear fruit for God. If, if you want the right kind of fruit in your life, if you want to live the Christian life, then you've got to understand this. And so, and so there's some big concepts that Paul is introducing for us here in this in this context of relationships, some of them we'll touch on this week and some we'll have to expand in the weeks to come. But we want to just identify the basic principles that he's introducing to us in, in the sense of this death, if you will, to our old relationship with the law so that we can begin to understand the difference between a life that bears fruit for God and a life that doesn't. And the, and the key point to understand... The key point to understand here, or really in the, in the entirety of the Scripture, the key point to understand is the difference for someone who bears fruit for God and someone who doesn't. The difference is not that one is religious and the other is not. That is not at all what the Scripture teaches. The Bible doesn't want you to think that in order to bear fruit for God, you simply need to be more religious. You simply need to be someone who comes to church and someone who serves maybe some way uh, in the church or someone who gives or someone who follows a certain code of conduct. That is not the difference between a person who bears fruit for God and someone who doesn't bear fruit for God. The difference between a person who bears fruit for God and a person who doesn't is not that one is religious and one is not. It's that one has a relationship with Jesus Christ and the other doesn't. That's the difference. The difference, we might say, is how they try to relate to God. If it's a relationship that's built on laws, 
if it's a relationship that's built on your ability to keep guidelines and rules and rituals, you think that your relationship with God, or I should say you think of it in terms of whether you are able or whether you even want to keep the, uh, the rules, those laws, those, those uh, regulations. Some of you think of your relationship to God that way. You feel like you want to be religious or you feel like you might want to keep some laws or you don't feel that way and that's the way you govern your understanding of it. We can ask ourselves, is that the way we approach God or is it in a relationship? Do we relate to God based on Jesus' ability to keep rules? Do you think of your relationship to God based on whether or not He meets the requirements? Do you base your relationship with God based on whether or not He can keep those rules for you? See, whichever way you choose, that makes all the difference about whether or not you'll be fruitful in your relationship to God. Both people might be very religious. One person might be quite religious, but trusting in their ability to keep all these rules But they're never really going to truly know God. They're never really going to bear any fruit. One person, not trusting in themselves, but trusting in Christ, is going to experience a true relationship with God. And as a consequence of that, they're going to be very fruitful for God. Now, the way Paul presents all this is, is, if you will, in these uh, series of principles... And with that sort of contrast in our minds, we can look at what he tells us in this passage and understand it. First of all, in the first three verses, Paul tells us this basic principle that death brings an end to our previous relationship to the law. Death brings an end to our previous relationship to the law. Do you not know, Paul's saying, you should know. In other words, this should be obvious to you. I'm speaking to those who know the law. They had been taught the law. Uh, maybe Paul had taught it to them. They understood its, its statutes. They understood its penalties. And even more generally, they should have understood the general principles of law. Whether it was Jewish law or Roman law or Greek law, it really didn't matter. What Paul is saying here is basic to all legal codes. And what he's saying is basically that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Once you die, the law has nothing else that it can do to you. Some of you remember in 2006, the infamous CEO of the Enron Corporation, Kenneth Lay. His name was uh, synonymous with corporate fraud and abuse. And he was indicted in 2006 on 10 counts of securities fraud and other related charges which would have landed him in prison for well beyond the rest of his life. But he could never be sentenced because in the summer of 2006 he died. Died of a heart attack in Snowmass, Colorado. Once he was dead, there was no need for a sentencing trial because there was nothing the law could do to him. See, once you die, that's it. The jurisdiction of the law ends. Its ability to inflict anything against you is gone. This is a universal idea. Death frees a person from law. Death frees a person from rules, from regulations. And in the same way, Paul has been teaching that when you come to Christ, 
If you come to Christ, the only way you come is if you die together with Him. As he said in chapter 6, he used the image of baptism. If you're baptized into His death, when we come and when we join ourselves to Him and when He died, we die. And because of that death, we died not only to the old life of sin, but we died to the law. And so now, as dead men... If we are dead because we died in Christ, a fundamental change has happened in our relationship to the law. We are released from its obligations. And so now Paul wants to illustrate that with sort of an analogy of marriage. As he says in verse 2, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She's released from from that old relationship and all of her legal obligations to it. Moreover, he says in verse 3, accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another while her husband's still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So this, this deals not only with the end of the jurisdiction of law, this has to do with the freedom within the law if you will, the freedom for a new relationship. Now, don't get lost in all the details here. In the first verse, you may have picked up on this, that Paul is speaking about us who are believers dying to the law. Now, in this verse, or in these two verses, he's speaking about how the law governs a person whose spouse has died. And in this case, he's saying that when your spouse dies, you're free to remarry. In one situation, your relationship to the law changes because you die. In another situation, your relationship to the law changes because your spouse died. But the point is the same. Death brings a change in your relationship to the law. That's the big point. And when it comes to, to marriage, if you, were, uh, if you try to marry another person while your husband or while your wife is still alive, you would rightly be called a violator. You would rightly be called an adulteress or an adulterer. You would still be bound, you would still be governed by the laws regarding your first marriage, and that kind of relationship ought to be and would be inappropriate. It would be illegal. It would be uh, 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 immoral. It would be unright. And you would be condemned. You would be called an adulterer. You would be called an adulteress. Not so much by the people around you, but by the law. The law is the one making those declarations. But if your first spouse dies, then you're free. You're free from those laws. You're free from those commitments. And now you can be joined to another person. Paul, by the way, is not trying to build here an entire uh, uh, case of marital law. So he's not really dealing with the, the difficult questions of divorce. To understand his, his full understanding of marital law, we'd have to try to go to those passages which he wrote specifically to address marriage, to address things like uh, divorce even. But what he's doing here is he's just trying to to build not a full allegory where everything perfectly corresponds, but, but in one verse, he's talking about us dying. In another verse, he's talking about our spouse dying. But the larger point is the same. Death brings a change in our relationship. It brings a change in our relationship to the law. It brings a change in the kind of demands that it can put on us. 
And because of that, there's nothing illegal about ignoring what the old stipulations had against you and entering into a new relationship. That's the point. There's nothing illegal now about someone who leaves uh, an old spouse because he passed away and entering into a new relationship. Whereas if they were under the law, it would still be illegal. That sort of brings us to the second point that Paul's presenting here that helps us to understand this fundamental change that's taking place in our relationship to the law and our relationship to Christ. Uh, With our previous relationship to the law ended, Paul tells us in verse 4, we can enter this new relationship to Christ. With our previous relationship to the law ended, we can enter this new relationship with Christ. That's what he says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. So Paul returns here to this fundamental truth that we, we are the ones who died. We are the ones who died to the law. He's left this idea of our spouse dying and he's reminding us that we're the ones who have died to this law because we're the ones who died with Christ. And we died to the law, Paul says, through the body of Christ being united with him on the cross. And because of that death, the law no longer has jurisdiction over you. It no longer has jurisdiction over you. So, we're free to be married to Christ. We're free to enter into a new relationship with Him. Of course, the idea behind all this is you can't form that relationship with Christ until the former relationship is ended. You can't do it. You cannot come to Christ. You cannot be a Christian if your relationship to the law hasn't ended. You cannot come to Christ. You cannot know God if you are still trusting in the law. You may try to relate to God that way. You may try to approach God that way by keeping guidelines and rituals and rules, but it's inappropriate. You're not free, if you will, to approach Him because you're still married to the law. And there's no combination that is acceptable. There is no polygamy. Or we, we might say polyandry, the, the, the having of multiple husbands. You cannot have the law and also have Christ. The only way for you to have Christ is for your old relationship for the law, to the law to be ended. The only way for you to have Christ is for your old relationship to your religious works, to your religious deeds to come to an end. And so, if you approach Christ still believing that you are made worthy of Him by claiming that you have followed all of these religious rules, you will be as unfit for Christ as any married woman approaching another man. Listen, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, if you're here today and you are not a believer, if you think that you come to Christ but you think that He will accept you because of your virtue or because of your decency or because of your religious performance of some deed. If you come to Jesus and you think that He's going to recognize all the good things that you do for other people, 
how you have been kind and how you might have been honest and how you might have been generous. Generous. If you, if you come to Him clinging to all those old works of the law, you might as well come seeking a relationship with Him while you're still clinging to your old husband. And if you approach God thinking that He's going to recognize all those deeds and all the times that you've done good to other people and how much better you are than others, if you approach God that way, then you are going to be approaching God in a relationship to the law, in a relationship to your good deeds. And in that kind of relationship, there's only one way that you're ever going to get to God. It's to be absolutely perfect. That's what the Scripture's already told us in Romans. That, that the demand of the law is that you live perfectly righteous. That if you are righteous, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, there is a reward. But if you are not, if you fail the law in any way, if you approach God in anything other than perfection, the perfection of God Himself, then you're going to be rejected. And so you'll never make it because no one's perfect. What you have to do, what you have to do, is you have to end your relationship to all those good deeds. You have to end your relationship to all of that law-keeping. And you have to begin a brand new relationship with Christ. Now, this relationship to Jesus will not only allow you to approach God, but listen to this. It will also cause you to finally bear fruit for God. Say, what are you talking about? I mean, I've been doing all these religious deeds all these years. Isn't that fruit? No. None of it is. None of your efforts in God's eyes are anything, it's no fruit. It's no credit. There's no recognition of any good thing you have done. In fact, that's Paul's final point here. It's his third principle to help us understand this fundamental change that has to take place in verses 5 and 6. This new relationship with Christ is necessary in order to bear genuine fruit to God. This is the big point, really, that he introduces here and he really develops for us throughout the rest of this chapter and throughout the rest of chapter 8. And and what he wants us to understand is this. You cannot and you will not bear any real fruit for God unless you are in a relationship with Christ. A relationship according to religious law will not work at all. This is the way Paul says it, in order, all this is in order that we might bear fruit to God for while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You see, you might have concluded, you might have already realized that people who are lawless, people who are just profligate and just running around irreligious, you might have already guessed that they're not bearing fruit to God. But what he's talking about are people who are under the law. 
people who are trying to keep the law. And what he says is, is that those people who are under the law are actually having the law provoke within them ungodly things. The law is actually, as he says, uh, uh, sinful passions are aroused. Dia is the Greek particle there, through the instrumentality of the law. In other words, our old relationship to whatever it was with the law, our old relationship with those rules, we might have been exerting all kinds of effort at keeping the law, but the fruit of all that effort wasn't fruit for God. It was fruit for death. In other words, it was just more reasons for God to condemn you, more reasons for God to judge you. More reasons for you to be rejected by him because of your rebellion against him. In fact, Paul introduces this idea here. As we'll see next week, he expands it in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 11. He goes on to talk about how things like covetousness are actually stoked by the law, not mollified by them. That idea of all our sinful passions aroused by the law, sinful passions actually at work through the law, bringing about the fruit of death in our lives. And it's the issue that Paul will go on to say. The issue in all this is not that somehow the law is not good, somehow that the law is deficient, or there's a problem with the law. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with you. The problem is with you. God keeps the law perfectly. It's a reflection of his nature. There's no problem with the law. The problem is with you. It's the way you react to the law. It's what Paul calls these sinful passions inside of you so that if you're not in Christ, you cannot interact with the law in a right way. It is impossible. And it always brings forth death. You might ask yourself, well, I mean, why is that? I mean, how, how in the world can that be? Someone who is sincerely trying their best, trying to be a good person, trying to follow all of God's laws, follow the Bible. I mean, how can that be that, that, that the law is actually an instrument of death? Well, see, this is the problem. Paul is teaching that no effort is sincere. None. There is none who are sincere in their religious efforts if they are outside of Christ. Do you hear that? There are none outside of Christ who are sincere in their religious efforts. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew following Jewish law. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist following the law of karma. Nothing you do will be pleasing to God because you interact with anything that is, uh, if you will, legal in that sense. If you interact with anything that is a reflection of true righteousness and a reflection of what is pleasing to God, it simply arouses your sin. Now you might ask, well, why, why do you say that? I mean, where, does it, where in the world does it say that? Well, Paul eventually tells us this if you flip right over to Romans chapter 8. Because he's continuing this discussion of our relationship with the law all the way down into that chapter. And notice what he says in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For listen to this. The mind, verse 7, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. You see that? It cannot. It's unable. It's incapable of approaching the law sincerely. It's incapable of pleasing God by anything religious that it does. So every person, the scripture tells us, is either in the flesh or in the spirit. Or another way to say that, uh, every person is either in a relationship to the law or they're in a relationship to Christ. And depending on your relationship to Christ, you are either living according to the flesh or if you're in Christ and you receive the Spirit of God, you're living according to the Spirit. And those who walk according to the flesh, they set their minds, they think, they view the world, their outlook and worldview is through the flesh. And their minds toward God, therefore, are hostile. They can't submit to the law of God. They're not even able to do so. So when someone who is outside of Christ encounters, to, encounters the law, that encounter is hostility. It is hostile. It is a, an encounter of perhaps frustration, an encounter of guilt, an encounter of shame. And so their response is always sinful. They, 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 on one hand, they either hate it and spurn it and have nothing to do with it. In other words, they demonstrate their hostility by, by lawless kind of living. They just completely walk away from religion altogether. Or they approach the law by pride, selectively choosing parts which they believe cover up their deficiencies and turning the law into a reason for boasting, for building themselves up. In fact, if you want to do an interesting study, study the word boast in Paul's writing and notice how often he says it in conjunction with people who are trying to boast in the law. These people approach God with pride in their hearts because they're trying to use the law to basically show that they are a good person. When in fact the law, if they would actually listen to it, tells them the opposite. It tells them the opposite. Or if they don't live by pride, they live by fear, and so they're always trying to, trying to cover things up. They're in this constant battle. One day they're cast into miserable guilt and shame. The next day they turn around and try to do something good to make themselves feel better. And then the next thing you know, they turn around and they falter again and they're cast into shame and then trying to do something better. But they're always living in the sense of fear. And many people, that drives them away from religion. As Paul says in Romans 8.15, even we were in slavery to fear because of the law. That's the way many of us interacted with the law. Or some people just feel trapped. They feel, they feel enslaved like a debtor to the law. 
as Paul goes on to say there in Romans 8 as well, a, a sense of resentment and, and even avoidance. Like when you owe someone money, you don't really want to be around them if you can't pay, right? That's the way he says it is for some people. They have this abiding sense of a debt that they, they have to pay, but they can't do it. They can't find it within them to be as religious as their spouse. They can't find it within them to be as religious as their parents. They can't find it within them to be as religious as people around them seem to expect them to be. So they feel guilty and they want to run, want to run away from all of that. And so the law is always arousing these, these things in the heart of an unbeliever. Hatred and animosity and resentment and fear of religion or pride and boasting and hypocrisy and consequently a critical spirit to people that you don't think are as righteous as you. These are the sinful passions. They're aroused by the law. Because those whose minds are set in the flesh, their mind is hostile towards God. It isn't true righteousness that they're after. It is a form, a facade. No matter how you boast, though, you cannot please God. You're not able to do so. But if that's your primary relationship, if you're married to your religious performance, if you approach God believing that He's going to recognize how good you've been, how well you've kept all these lies, you are deceived. You're deceived. Nothing you've done will mean anything to Him. In fact, everything you've done, He'll see as sinful. All of your filthy, all of your good deeds will be seen, as Isaiah says, as filthy rags before God. And if you approach saying you're a Christian when in fact you still are trusting in your own good deeds, it's even more disgusting. Because you're approaching God claiming to have a relationship with His Son when you've got a relationship with something else. A relationship with the law. But in verse 6, on the other hand, Paul says, but now we, we're released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He uses written code here to, to talk about, if you will, the powerlessness, the, if you will, just the surface uh, of, the, of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the law, we might say. The written code. It's just simply words on a page in the sense of being able to change you, to make you anything different. But when you break your relationship with that law and all your good deeds and you enter into a new relationship with Christ, through that new relationship, you are raised spiritually from the dead. Your hostility to God comes to an end. Your hostility toward His righteousness comes to an end. And you inherit the Spirit. And so now Paul says you can serve Him. Not in the old way. Not according to the written code. Not according to, as some versions say, the letter of the law. But in the new way of the Spirit. 
Something changes. You see a person and they're changed and you know that they're changed. You know that something has taken place inside of them because they've been born again. And so Paul says, when he says this, we've been joined together to Christ and we're married together with him so that we can bear fruit to God. This is the whole purpose of this new relationship. We can serve God now because of the dynamics of the Spirit. Again, Paul's expansion of this comes to us in Romans 8 over in verse 10 of Romans 8. Notice what he says there. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So you hear it three times. If Christ is in you, if the Spirit is in you, the Spirit dwells in you. This is the new realities when you join yourself to Christ. So then, brothers, he says, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so here's this new relationship. A new relationship that's not based on the law anymore. A new relationship that's not based on that old covenant anymore. But a new relationship that is now based on the Spirit. And the Spirit living inside of you, causing you to put to death the deeds of the flesh which Paul says in Galatians, are obvious. They're obvious. By the way, this is not an all-at-once affair. If you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, using very similar terminology, tells us there in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, Since we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face, that is when he went to, mounts, uh, to the mount to, to meet with God or go out to the tent of meeting to meet with God, and he would meet with God, he would come out, and the, the glory of God would literally reflect for hours, if not days, from his face. And so in order to, to shield other people from the frightening sight of God's glory, he would put a veil over his face. And so he says, we're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So he's saying they're interacting with the law, they're reading the law, but they're reading it blindly. They're reading it with a veil over their eyes. Verse 15, yes, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So here we are now. We're gazing on Christ. Here we are now. God has removed the veil. And rather than trying to read the Old Covenant through this veiled look and trying to somehow 
manufacture something that we think God will be pleased with. God removes the veil and we're looking at Christ. And by gazing into His glory, we are being transformed from one image of glory to the next. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. This is what the Lord is working in our hearts. This is what Paul really goes on to unfold in Romans 7 and 8 with glorious grandeur. This is, if you will, the heart of his message in the book of Romans. This is what he wants us to fully understand. He wants us to understand this dead condition we had under the law. And he wants us to understand the the condition of every unbeliever under the law. So that we will eventually understand the life of the Spirit. So that we'll understand this transformation that's continually taking place when we gaze upon the the, the, the glory and the beauty of Christ. Transformed from one image to the next. We'll look forward to getting into that next week. Would you stand together with me? If you're here today and you hear all this talk about relationship, marriage, the only relationship that you have known is a relationship of failed and disappointed effort trying to please God. His call to you today is He doesn't want that. He wants you to end that. He wants you to sever that relationship. Renounce all of your efforts for what they are. Failed, sinful, imperfect, worthy of His rejection and condemnation. Renounce them. But you renounce them simply so that you can be joined together with Christ. Our invitation to you today is this, that you would do that. That you would give your heart to Him. That you would place yourself right there on the cross with Him and die to your old life so that you now can live for God. We're going to bow in prayer in just a moment. I'm going to pray and dismiss us and Darby will lead us in a closing song. When we're done, if the Lord is working on your heart, we encourage you, find me, find Darby, find one of our elders, one of our Sunday school teachers so so that we can share with you in a more full and rich way what this freedom in Christ Freedom from the law. Freedom in righteousness is really all about. Father, we're grateful for your truth that comes to us through simple pictures, analogies, relationships, marriage and the law. But they are profound and eternal truths. Letting us know just what has transpired on our behalf. Such a radical change. Lord, we need to understand it more deeply and we pray that you would teach us. Teach us by this word. Teach us by this chapter. Teach us what it is to be set free from the condemnation of the law. To be raised in new life. To walk in fellowship and conformity to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.